Good morning. Our theme for this morning is Cry Out to God, and it's based on a scenario that we read about in Exodus chapter 2. So I think it is fitting that we start out by calling on God right now. Let me lead you in a prayer. Father God, we recognize that we are all tired, and many people are going through excessive amounts of stress. There have been family losses. There are, some are dealing with the coronavirus sickness and are fighting uh, for health. Uh, those who have lost loved ones who have not been able to say goodbye in the way that they wanted to. And as a nation, we have great questions about uh, restarting the economy and going back to work and uh, who gets to go back to the office when. And we need wisdom in regard to when and how we reopen the church in terms of gathering together again while we try to figure out the best path forward together. We ask for wisdom for our pastoral staff, for our overseers, and everybody else who's involved in this decision. And we also ask that you'll grant us as a congregation the ability to stay together and do what is best for all and to be patient during this time. This morning, give us ears to hear as we cry out to you. And we also pray that uh, you will have mercy on our nation, on its leaders, and on our world at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jen Pollock Michelle wrote an interesting statement in a recent issue of Christianity Today magazine. Her statement was, quote, prayer is never the last resort of God's people. It is our first point of action. That statement probably resonates in the hearts of many Christians, I hope with most Christians. But it also puts us at odds with people who do not understand prayer or who despise our reliance on God in times of trouble. For example, consider the criticism that rose up in the press when Vice President Mike Pence was photographed leading the national COVID-19 response team in prayer on the first day of their deliberations. My point is not political in nature, but this shows how far our American culture has changed in just a few decades. For instance, nobody criticized FDR when he led the nation in prayer at the opening of D-Day 76 years ago this Saturday, and God raised up a generation of leaders. But 76 years later, public prayer in the United States gets mocked. I wanted to start with that observation this morning because our theme is cry out to God. It's subtle, but something powerful begins to happen to break down the walls of exile and abuse when people of faith begin to cry out to our God. So welcome back to North River Church today. For the past several weeks, we have been working our way through a series of messages called Living in Exile. Each week, we have been searching for and then mining out nuggets of wisdom that help us make the most of our current COVID-19 exile from workplaces, normal patterns, and direct fellowship. These nuggets of wisdom come from examples of people from the Bible who thrived during periods of exile. Now, here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. Conventional wisdom says, act first and only pray as a last resort. Biblical wisdom says, pray first, knowing that God raises up generations of leaders. I'd like to show you where that comes from. 
First, there are four factors that set up the discoveries that I would like to lead you through that we take here from Exodus chapter 2. The first factor was abuse in the form of slavery. Verses 11 through 13 uh, tell part of the story. It says, uh, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. That's from chapter 1 of Exodus, verses 11 through 13. Now, when the Israelites originally settled in Egypt, they were treated well. Joseph, by that time, even though he had gone to Egypt as a servant or a slave and even a prisoner, was in a position of great authority, the second highest ruler in all of the land. And he was invited to bring his entire family down to Egypt as the famine dragged on, and the pharaoh of that time lavished praises and blessings and good land and opportunity on them. But then a new king initiated a long, undefined, abusive season. The Israelite population was turned into slave labor by the Egyptians. The key words here are slave masters, forced labor, oppressed, and worked them ruthlessly. I went through a pretty long study to try and figure out exactly how long was that slavery period. And if, if you're interested in that, I'm not going to down, go down that rabbit trail this morning, but buy me a cup of coffee sometime and we can talk about that. I think that we've got that down to somewhere between 80 and 144 years that uh, the slavery period went on. So the first factor is abuse in the form of slavery. The second is the cunning leadership of the midwives. This is what we talked about last Sunday. Again, in verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Remember, the story of the redemption of Israel did not begin with Moses. It actually begins with the boldness of the midwives. They feared the Lord more than the king, and so they ended up defying the king's order, which was to commit infanticide against the Jewish people. In some very real ways, this was the first coordinated pro-life effort in the world. And then there, the third factor was the alliance of three. That's what I'm calling it. Three women who stepped forward to preserve the life of Moses. Here in chapter 2, if we scrunch together some sections from verse 2 to 8, it reads this way. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. She saw the basket among the reeds. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Who are the three women in this alliance of three? Well, the first is Jochebed, Moses' mother. Her name is not listed here, even though her actions are. We discover her name later in the story. And then there is Miriam, Moses' sister, who watches the basket that's carrying the little boy along the banks of the Nile. Uh, contrary to some of the movies that we've seen or the cartoon retelling of the stories, 
the basket wasn't out in the midst of the fast-moving tide. It was along the edge with his sister guiding along close behind it. And the third person in the alliance is the daughter of the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who becomes Moses' adoptive mother. This alliance raises some questions about Pharaoh's daughter. She had compassion on Moses. So we wonder, was she already a mother? Was she single but wanting a child? If so, this is a great story of how God includes single women for important, risky roles in his redemptive plan of the ages. Had she lost a child? If so, this is a great story of how God redeems individual sadness and brokenness while he is at work redeeming a nation. We see a great alliance formed by these three women who work to preserve Moses' life and then raise him as the grandchild of the Pharaoh. I don't think it is a stretch to say that this is the first and second pro-life alliance in history, first with two women and then with three more. So again, our main idea says that conventional wisdom says, Act first and only pray as a last resort. Biblical wisdom says, pray first, knowing that God raises up generations of leaders. And here we see God raising up a generation that starts with five women, the two midwives, and then Moses' mother and sister, and the daughter of the Pharaoh. And then there's the fourth factor. The Israelites began to groan and cry out to God. Verse 23 in chapter 2 says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The long period spoken of here is the 40 years when, when Moses was tending sheep in the land of the Midianites. He was 40 when he fled Egypt after he got so angry at seeing the abuse toward his fellow Israelites that he murdered an Egyptian guard who had been the abuser and then tried to cover it all up. Moses was angry over systemic racial abuse, in this case, against the Hebrew people. In turn, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, became so angry that he wanted to kill Moses. Moses fled and took up a new life as a shepherd far away from Egypt, all the way across the desert. Two things happened here in these verses. First, the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses died. And then the people of Israel began to cry out to God. This observation is the launching pad for the rest of this morning's discoveries. Remember, Conventional wisdom says act first and only pray as a last resort. Biblical wisdom says pray first, knowing that God raises up generations of leaders. So what do we learn about God from this snapshot of exile? There are four discoveries that I'd like to walk you through. Here's the first. The ark of redemption is long. Verse 23 says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died the Israelites groaned in their slavery. God has been writing a grand narrative throughout all history. Years ago, 
when all of North River took a year-long walk through a chronological study of the Bible, we repeatedly talked about two concepts, the upper story and the lower story. The lower story is about what is happening in the immediate passage and that time frame that we are studying. The upper story is about how all the pieces fit together in God's great plan of worldwide redemption. This is the bigger picture. And we interpret scripture through the lens of that upper story. God isn't writing a short story that will be lost in an otherwise greater history of the world. God is working behind the scenes to craft and influence the greatest story of all time. And guess what? You and I are part of that story. It will only end with a new heaven that comes down to earth, which is the final picture in Revelation. It will only end when every knee bows before King Jesus and every tongue worships the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. While those who resisted, opposed, or ignored Jesus gnash their teeth in soul-anguishing regret. That's the first discovery. The Ark of Redemption is long. Here's the second. God never overlooks patterns of injustice. In fact, God hates injustice. So we go back to these same verses. In verse 23, it says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God rewards the two midwives who defied the king and who opposed his plan for infanticide. But here's what we don't know. We don't know how how many other Egyptian midwives may have capitulated to this monstrous plan. We do see that in chapter 2, Moses' mother first hides him and then gives him away by putting him in that basket and floating it on the Nile. Why? Why does she do this? Well, it seems that she had no choice. Some others were carrying out the plan. But Moses was saved by the acts of two courageous women who feared the Lord more than the king. And God took the little bit that they could do, and he started his rescue plan right there. Now, I have to tell you something, that every act of personal and systemic injustice is always committed by people, not by God. I'll bet most of you know that and agree with that. Why point this out? Just this week, I read about another of the young atheists who love to tear apart the faith of young Christians, most of, most of the time students. This one blamed the problem on God that he created this virus and that he created a Christian-dominated American culture, culture that models and endorses systemic racism. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I am not denying that some forms of systemic racism exist in our country. But people with sin-corrupted hearts commit every single one of those acts. The white father and son who shot Armad Arbery a few weeks ago, that was a racist act. The white woman in Central Park who made a fake phone call to the New York police earlier this week, charging that an African-American bird watcher who simply asked her to follow the law and leash her dog was, in, was threatening her. That was a racist act, and she knew what she was doing. Or the African-American man in Minneapolis who was choked by the knee of a now-fired police officer 
while calling out that he could not breathe. And while bystanders filming this whole episode tried to get the officer to let up. That was beyond what was necessary for reasonable force in order to arrest this man. There's no question about that. And even uh, politicians at every level are calling for an investigation and to look at the, the practices that were going on. And it makes us wonder, why did the other three officers stand by as this went on so long and the man kept calling out, I can't breathe. Our God, the God of the covenants and the scriptures does not overlook injustice. But sometimes his plan for dealing with it involves preparing people who catch his vision and then lead. In the case of Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3, he began with two courageous midwives, an alliance of three women that reached into the king's very own household, and a baby. Perhaps this should be a movie. We could call it Five Women and a Baby. Yet God is often blamed for giving human beings the freedom that they have to make unwise choices, evil choices, corrupt choices, even deadly choices. So when you go off to school or you read the books of the New Atheists, don't fall for their ideas. They use twisted logic that cherry-picks scripture, that's always the case, while accusing Christians of doing the very same thing. Here's the third discovery about God that we make. God often waits until his people pray. He often waits to do the things that he longs to do or to respond the way that he wants to respond because he's going to do it through people. He interferes miraculously as little as possible. Again, we go back to those verses. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Notice the pattern in these three verses. God begins to move when his people cry out to the Lord. This is prayer. This is lament. This is confession. Do you remember that quote that I began today's message with? Prayer is never the last resort of God's people. It is our first point of action. Not of inaction, but of action. This is what the people who mock praying Christians fail to understand. And you and I need to constantly add to our prayer lives no matter where we start. But prayer is action in the sight of God. It's meant to be followed up with specific acts that he directs and that he leads us to, but prayer is the first action, the first point of action of God's people. Brilliantly said by Jen Pollock Michelle in Christianity Today. Now, here's an attempt to follow up on, on this nugget of wisdom from the Bible, if, if you wish to. Today, the South Shore Regional Prayer Gathering has continued to meet each month during this COVID period online. And if you're looking for a way to immediately apply what you've learned today or to your conviction about prayer, you can follow the link or find it on, on Facebook. Uh, on Facebook, uh, search for Glory of God South Shore, or we'll, we'll put up um, a, um, a notice with all of the addresses on it on the church Facebook page. A team from Christ Community Church in East Taunton is leading the worship and the prayer that will be happening on Sunday night. 
They have cut these back a bit to fit an online reality, knowing that so many of us are zoomed out at this point. So God often waits until his people pray. And here's the fourth discovery. God raises up leaders when we pray. Perhaps this is one of the greatest reasons of all why we should pray. So it says here, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And then notice what God does. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The first act here is from the Israelites. They not only groaned in their slavery, but it's the first indication that we have that they began to cry out to God. And then God began to act in four specific ways. First, God heard. That's a wonderful statement. God hears our prayers. Second, God remembered his covenant. Now, don't worry about God. It's not like God is forgetful. This is an intentional remembering of promises made because God was about to move. Third, God looked. That means he studied this. He looked intently at the situation in order to take in all the details and all of the relevant information about what was going on. And then we find that God was concerned. He had compassion for the people. Now, there's a whole message right there. God heard, God remembered, God looked, God was concerned. But that is for another day. Then God began the process of raising up the right leader for the impossible task of rescuing and redeeming his people from the midst of slavery in Egypt. Notice that from the time that the people cried out and when Moses returns to Egypt... 40 more years have gone by. 80 years from the time that Moses was born, 40 years from the time that he flees. You know what that tells me? God had a very specific leader in mind, and it was going to take some intense, well-developed training. And he was not going to shortcut the process with a half-baked leader for this cause. He wanted to get it right. But God also, in the meantime, raised up a generation of leaders to start the process because the the process was already rolling by the time that Moses comes back from the other side of the desert. Oh, who would those leaders be? Well, first, there were the two midwives. And then there was the three-person pro-life alliance of Moses' mother, sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. Later on, he would add Aaron, Moses' brother, and Joshua and Caleb, two younger men who stand beside Moses and who lead after Moses is gone. Our God, the God of the covenants and the God of the scriptures, does not overlook injustice in the world. I have no doubt that God is looking for and preparing preparing people today who catch his vision and follow where he leads. Perhaps you are sick and tired of seeing unarmed African-American men shot and killed in in the United States, and I am too. Some voices are trying to lay the blame for these acts of prejudice on the church, and when they do that, they're painting with a broad brush. Perhaps there are some churches that teach that kind of injustice or racial prejudice, but the churches that I've known have not. 
So when they do that, they're painting with a very broad brush. And that broad brush approach does not describe the soul of North River Church. North River is a church that looks like our mostly white suburban region, yet has a heart that is multiracial and longs to be a safe place for all people of color. And I look forward to the day when North River looks very, very different because we have created that kind of safe place here, even safer than today. This is why for several years we have worked in a partnership with one of the oldest historically African-American churches in Boston. Perhaps it's time for us to renew that effort in the coming weeks and months and years and to look for new opportunities to invest again instead of staying safely in the suburbs. To do that, we will need your help. We will need your wisdom, your talents, and your vision. But I know this, this is the place for us to start today. Let's start by crying out to God. Conventional wisdom says, act first and only pray as a last resort. Biblical wisdom consistently says, pray first. Bathe your activities in prayer, knowing that God raises up generations of leaders. Let me lead you in a prayer right now. God, our Father, we ask that you would be at work in our congregation that you will give us the ability to know you fully and clearly and to bring neighbors and friends and co-workers into a life-changing experience of the living God. We also ask that you will involve us in whatever kind of work that you long to do in this world as you set things right and as you turn injustices on their heads. And so, Lord, wherever you prompt us to go, I pray that you'll give us the courage to go. Whatever you prompt us to do as a church in response, I pray that you'll give us clarity and agreement and joy in going forward. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for taking some of your valuable time in order to continue to worship with us this way, to pray together, to puzzle over Scripture, and to mine out truths that can transform who we are becoming even today. I'll see you again next weekend. Thank you for being a part of North River Church. I am grateful that you are part of our team.